Good evening, everyone. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and offer our respect to all Indigenous people here tonight. On behalf of the Walkley Foundation, I'm delighted to welcome everyone, and particularly our outstanding panel, here to talk about what investigative reporting means in the 21st century. The Walkleys unite a community of Australian storytellers and journalists dedicated to informing the community, telling the stories of our nation and our world and strengthening our democracy. The Walkleys are at the heart of the Australian media. We're independently funded and it's the support of our partners in the Australian media and corporate Australia that allows us to do the critical work of promoting a broad understanding and commitment to the principles of journalism. Tonight's event is part of our flagship Storyology Festival. It's a fabulous three-day celebration of journalism and storytelling going on in Paddington at the Chevelle Cinema. It's the opportunity for us to share ideas to learn about the new models that are sustaining journalism and the exciting new ways to tell stories. Now, it's no secret that the industry of journalism has seen some tough going over the past few years. And throughout that time, it's been investigative reporting that has continued to remind us how critical journalism is to our society. The work of people like our panel members tonight has put up in lights the importance of dogged pursuit of those stories many people would rather never saw the light of day. But investigative journalism itself is being transformed. Forty years ago, two reporters broke the Watergate scandal and inspired legions of young people to become investigative reporters. Some have dubbed the Panama Papers the Watergate of our time. But I bet neither Woodward nor Bernstein could have envisioned a project involving more than 400 journalists in constant communication on 11 million plus documents. Investigative reporters still need all their old methods like cultivating sources and digging through documents but now they also need to wrangle big data and protect their metadata. As always, this kind of reporting is expensive to produce, it's risky and it's hard to do. But its importance to society demands that we continue to experiment with new ways, using new tools to dig out the facts that let us expose the big stories of our time. Now, I know the stories we're going to hear tonight will remind us again just what journalists do for our society and our democracy. <clears throat> they hold the powerful to account, expose flaws in our institutions and protect the most vulnerable among us. And if you recognise the importance of that journalism, here's something you can do. The Walkley Foundation has benchmarked excellence in Australian journalism since 1956. These days, we're also fortifying journalism into the future with a full year-long program of awards, of innovation grants and support for uh, journalism innovators, uh, of talks, of exhibitions, of trainings, including storyology. We're helping journalists figure out how to keep doing investigative reporting in a time of great change. 
If you want to help us keep this kind of journalism alive, you can make a tax-deductible donation here tonight or you can go online at warclears.com forward slash donate. And please do stay up to date with everything we're doing by subscribing to our newsletter online at warclears.com forward slash subscribe. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Snapchat, and I'm guessing Pinterest. So there's pretty much something for everyone. And if you enjoy this panel tonight, then why don't you join us tomorrow at the Chevelle for our Storyology program? And with that, I'm pleased to hand you over now to one of the great minds on journalism, Penny O'Donnell, who will guide you through tonight's discussion. Thanks so much, Jackie. Uh, just to give you a sense of how we'll uh, go this evening, uh, the panel uh, will last for about 80 minutes. Uh, the panellists will uh, share their insights for about 50 of those minutes and then we'll have uh, time to open up to questions from the audience. Uh, there's two microphones, one on either side, and uh, I'll let you know in advance when you can start uh, lining up to um, ask your questions. So joining me here on the panel, it's uh, my great pleasure and honour to introduce uh, Gerard Ryle, who's the director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists based in Washington, D.C. Next to Gerard is Lena Atala, co-founder and chief editor of Madamas, a, a Cairo-based uh, digital news website, and next to Lena is Kate McClymouth, who is an investigative journalist. I'm sure you know her from the Sydney Morning Herald. She's also the chair of the Walkley Foundation Advisory Board, and she's a fellow of the uh, University of Sydney Senate. So please join me in welcoming our guests. As Jackie said, our concern here tonight is the role of journalists in holding the powerful to account and looking out for the most vulnerable in society. And what do big investigative stories like the Panama Papers or today's news about the Nauru leaks uh, say about the future of journalism? I'm going to start with Jared, and I'd like to begin by asking you, since the Panama Papers were published in early April... What's happened? Well, it's been different um, things of happening. I mean, there's the immediate reaction, which you might have all seen on TV, where you have the big political resignation and the Prime Minister of Iceland. Um, there was also a minister who had to resign in Spain. There was a chief lawmaker in Armenia. And then there's a second round of things. So there's the criminal inquiry going on at the moment in the US. Um, there's a, an investigation now, a European-wide investigation at the European Union level. And then, then there's all these... Um, other investigations around the world, including here in, in Australia, in, in relation to tax. Now, obviously, the offshore world is primarily involved in tax evasion and tax avoidance, but this story was, I think, different to that. It was more than that. Um, but, you know, it can often now take a long time before you actually start seeing people going to jail. We've had a few, um, you know, police raids. Um, Mossack Fonseca has had to close several offices around the world. Like, we called it the Panama Papers, and it was a Panamanian law firm primarily at the center of all this, but they had offices all over the world, and they've had to close all those offices. They've also had to resign from hundreds of companies, and of course now they're under pressure. They're even raided, their offices were raided in Panama. 
and, um, and a lot of documents were seized there. Now, we've also been inundated with requests from governments around the world and tax offices to get access to the documents. Um, our policy is that we don't. We're not an arm of government, so we're refusing to hand the documents over. Um, and we're being accused by some of basically hindering the potential criminal and civil inquiries that are going on. Our point is that if they really wanted to get this material, all they have to do is go to Panama and ask the Panamanian government, and they should be able to get it. And I understand President Obama made some comment. Yeah, we had a, well, well, there were lots of press conferences. One of them was with, uh, with, with Obama, but also, I mean, my favourites were at the Kremlin, basically, where I think Putin has now given about four different press conferences, initially attacking us, claiming that we were basically part of a Western plot against Russia, uh, because initially when we sent questions to all of his associates, he thought the story was just about him. And a week before publication, we had a major crisis because there, you know, there was the Kremlin having press conferences, basically advertising the story a week in advance. And you can imagine the pressure behind the scenes with us because we had all these reporters, 400 of them working for nine months. Uh, all the editors were ringing, the, the phones were going hot, and they were saying, we have to publish now. And, and basically my job was to keep everyone calm and to make sure that we waited until deadline. But after he'd, you know, he saw the president of the Ukraine was also in there, that, that the prime minister of Iceland had to resign, he, he basically changed tact. And he's never denied anything we, we were writing. I mean, we're actually accusing his associates of, of basically looting hundreds of millions of dollars from public entities in Russia. Now, he hasn't denied any of the facts, but now he's happily saying that the facts are correct. But um, who cares? You know? Lena, if we can go to Egypt, the Panama Papers exposed a big fish in Egyptian politics, the eldest son of the former President Mubarak, I think his name's Alan. Uh, how did that news, what reaction was there to that news in Egypt? Well, once the release happened, we didn't have a lot of doubts that if we do a quick search on Egypt, we'll find some very interesting names. And we've already had some background knowledge about uh, tax evasion uh, charges associated with the sons of the president, of the former president, so it wasn't a big surprise. There was a public uh, knowledge that was not uh, um, corroborated with the kind of documentation the Panama Papers provided us with about the uh, corruption of the sons of the, of the president. So, of course, uh, there was an initial um, public interest in the story because of this uh, the most, it was the most official kind of corroboration of these uh, charges um, against the sons of the president on one hand, uh, against whom uh, uh, no prosecution has been successful ever since the revolution of 2011 took place. But there was also the relevance of the economic context in which uh, those papers were released. So Egypt is going through this major fiscal crisis, uh, a cornerstone of which is tax evasion. So also um, the fact that uh, this story was broken right in the middle of this uh, crisis which is uh, the brunt of which is being lived by so many Egyptians today, also made it uh, very relevant. Um, I do not think we managed to sustain, uh, unfortunately, the interest in uh, the story for longer uh, after the initial uh, release, and you know that made us raise a lot of questions about how to keep uh, the story uh, going past the big boom of the initial release, release of the papers, what kind of follow-ups is, is, is possible to be made there. I think that's the energy that should, be, uh, that should have uh, been taken place right after the initial release. But definitely it got uh, important public attention, particularly uh, due to the relevance and the context. 
It's important to acknowledge that investigative journalism is a very recent uh, news practice in the Middle East in particular. I think the Association for Arab Reporters uh, for Investigative Journalism only was set up in 2005, so we're talking about within the last decade. Has that had some impact on the ability of news sites like your own to both respond to the story but also have an audience that's interested in follow-up? There is certainly a growing appetite for this kind of journalism because um, all other journalism is always seen as partisan or propagandist or at least so much uh, narrative-driven in a way or another when uh, people have um, seen the value of data-heavy or evidence-heavy uh, journalism in basically telling a story in its most crude way without uh, too much mediation from the organization involved or the, 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 the journalists involved. So I think there's a growing appetite for it on one hand, and then there is also the grooming of some active young journalists uh, who took part in the consortium, uh, whether through the, 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 you know, the network of Arab investigative journalists, the network which is based in Amman in Jordan, uh, which gathers uh, you know, the best of investigative journalists in the country, but also those working independently. And I think um, these guys are gaining a very quick traction just because uh, of the kind of journalism they are offering, because people have an appetite for it and they understand how different it is from everything else. There's a thirst for information in a space where information is so scarce. Kate, if we can go to Australia and the reaction here. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull, our Prime Minister's name, popped up out of the Panama Papers, I think midway through the election campaign, and it seemed for a moment that it was a gotcha moment, Uh, but the story then fizzled. Uh, Can you just help us understand what happened there? It's fascinating how the media works here in many ways because um, one thing about that Malcolm Turnbull story was that as Jared, uh, we were discussing later that in the search engine there'd been a mistranslation of Malcolm Turnbull's name. It had either been, you know, Malcolm Bly Turnbull, you know, you know Turnbull Bly or something like that. So it was missed initially until um, Neil Chenoweth from the Fin Review found it about three weeks later. But the interesting thing is the caravan has moved on. Like there was a huge impetus um, in the first couple of days, a worldwide phenomenon of the Panama Papers. You know, as Jared was saying, there was the Icelandic president, there was, you know, soccer players, there was all sorts of people. And I think if Malcolm Turnbull had come out in day one or two, but also it's interesting to see what media follows things up and what doesn't, and if you don't have it... um, Often other media will just say, right, well, we don't have it, so we're going to ignore it. And you can never quite tell how that's going to pan out. But one of the interesting things I found about the Panama Papers is that of the 800 names in Australia, about 80 of them were serious organised crime people. So that's about 10% of the people, the Australians here, a serious organised crime, which I think just reflects that growing sophistication of crime figures to use tax havens to hide their wealth. 
And it just makes it so much harder for not just um, journalists, but for investigative authorities to, to trace that down. For instance, I can remember, um, you know, some time ago when there was the pursuit of Alan Bond. You probably all remember Alan Bond. So ASIC had followed the money to Switzerland and then there'd been a trust company in the Jersey Islands. At every single one of those um, tax havens, the Australian government had to serve documents, had to go through all the legal rigmarole of do we have any, um, what do you call it, um, when you've got... Uh, jurisdictional issues, whether you had treaties with those countries. And in the end, it just got too expensive. Yeah. After about the fourth tax haven, our, um, you know, ASIC officials here just sort of went, okay, look, enough. We just can't follow this anymore. And I just think it's a really interesting thing, not just for journalists, but for law enforcement. Because as Jared's um, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists found. Mossack Fonseca is just sort of like one black box that, you know, provides, um, you know, structures and lawyers and accountants to hide things. And then often they're hidden somewhere else. It's really hard to follow. So leaks like this are just so vital. I mean, we can't emphasise how important a leak of this magnitude is, really. Anything to add? Yeah, well, I think the primary, um, I mean, the primary product that the offshore world has is secrecy, essentially. And why I was always fascinated by it is that almost every major scandal in the world, you know, Alan Bond, any, but any major scandal, it always somehow ends up in the offshore world. And when you get to that island in the middle of the Caribbean, that's as far as you can go as a journalist. You can never go any further. I mean, whatever chance the authorities have we as journalists have got no chance at all. So what I liked about this is that we had basically 40 years of records of this one major firm, one of the top five incorporators of offshore companies in the world. And so you're able to see pretty much in day-to-day -day detail for 40 years what was happening. And what was one of the biggest surprises for me is that Mossack Fonseca themselves didn't even know who the clients were. You know, So when we went with questions at the end, and this was a big process for us, where we had literally page after page after page of questions, and we said, and this is your client, and this is your client, and the surprising answer came back, said, we don't know who these people are. And, you know, as far as they were concerned, their clients were the big banks, their big accountancy firms, and they didn't know who the actual human being was until we told them. And it was the journalists that basically had to, you know, one thing about leaks is that you don't just get a leak and then have a story. You've actually got to go outside the documents. You've got to put context around everything. And so it took a lot of work by the journalists to work out who the actual human being was at the end. Um, and I thought that was amazing that you know, you're supposed to have rules. They were supposed to know who the clients were, hmm. but they just stopped at the first level. And after that, I mean, I could tell you more anecdotes, but I mean, I remember typing in the word Ponyang into our search engine and found a company that was registered in the capital of North Korea. And Mossack Fonseca didn't know that this is one of the companies that was basically on the OFAC sanctions list. Uh, as far as they were concerned, the client was in Hong Kong because it was a client in Hong Kong that it registered on behalf of the North Korean government. 
I'm really interested to hear whether you think we're looking at uh, the emergence of a new era in investigative journalism. Just even having the kind of global reach we've got on this panel, uh, the stories seem to be global. Uh, cooperation between journalists, which is definitely a kind of innovation, and also this kind of very sophisticated use of uh, technology. Uh, both to facilitate uh, the leaking, but also to facilitate the analysis, as you say, of the documents. So, Jared, do, do you, you know, are we looking at a new era? Well, I think we're looking at a very exciting era for journalism because basically the technology is there for. I mean, you look at the history of leaks. You know, we started really with WikiLeaks in 2010, where it exploded. And it was really because I think journalists weren't doing their jobs. And it allowed this little small organization to come in and take over a role that we had traditionally played. And, and then, of course, it got bigger with, with Snowden. It got bigger with some of the other ones we were working on, offshore leaks. And then finally, now, the, you know, the biggest one, and I say the biggest one so far, Panama Papers, because I think another one's going to be bigger again afterwards. So... We have to, I think, adjust ourselves as journalists now to this, this, this year. We need to learn how to be able to read massive amounts of documents, build search engines, and I think it's the era really where we need to marry um, man and, and machine basically together and, and, and cut through a lot of the sort of manual labour we used to do. But, but having said that, mm. it was still traditional journalism that Julian Assange... Um, that Snowden actually turned to in order to get that message out. And it's interesting with WikiLeaks, even though Julian Assange seems to fall out with most people that he works with, but when he did have that cooperation, it was those um, traditional companies that analysed, were careful about what they put out there. And it also works the other way, you know, like with uh, Jared's um, Panama Papers, it was a global phenomenon, but we are still in many ways a village in that um, we're interested to see that the Icelandic president has resigned, but everyone is still interested in what is happening in their own neck of the woods and how it affects their own territory. So it's interesting that it's global, but we're still, you know, a, a, an isolated yeah. um, network at the same time. Just to second that very quickly, I, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, when we first started a conversation with WikiLeaks when the first releases were happening back in 2010, uh, you know, we remember that the big stories were basically sent to the big papers, the big stories that had like this global outlook, but then also WikiLeaks was also about thousands and thousands of cables that were about extremely localized stories, and this is where they actually had this intelligence of wanting to go to small independent newsrooms in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Lebanon, and I'm talking about the region because that's what I'm aware of uh, more, and they actually wanted us to take the documents and start building context around them because they clearly said that the documents on their own don't tell the story. We do need a story to be broken around these documents from local newsrooms. And I think that was also another interesting example about the Panama Papers model, this working with several newsrooms across the world, several journalists across the world. This is how also the story was made local and hence garnered uh, the public attention of 
the countryside in Egypt, the, the, the capital city in Egypt, and not just the world in its entirety. So. Yes, and we must remember your news site is actually run by 23 journalists. That's so right. <laughs> uh, not only is it local, it's small and local. And I imagine that something like trying to follow up on the Panama Papers must have been a real challenge. Of course, it was uh, it was a real challenge, but also it was uh, what Gerald is mentioning: is how do you deal with a big repository that was just made available to you? How do you organize your human resources? How do you use tech tools that are there to help you mine this, you know, huge data? I mean, we are nowhere close or near to the complexity that you know the people who were making uh, this story possible was. But still, it was a big challenge because. Uh, it was, you know, uh, a wealth of documentation. And like I said, we live in, a, in the opposite antithesis situation of scarcity. So it was very interesting and exciting. And yet, you know, it demanded a lot of resources management in order to be dealing with it. Jared, when I uh, told some colleagues that I was going to be uh, talking to you on a panel tonight, uh, almost in one voice, they said to me, you have to get him to tell us how he did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't do it. It was a team effort. And I mean, we're, we're, um, we basically are very small. I mean, ICIJ, we have 12 staff. Um, so basically, when I went over there five years ago, I tried to work out, well, how do, you, how do you do this? And the only way you can really do it is by multiplying your resources. And the reason why we go and take so many media partners on board is that this is a, a great way for me to get all these reporters for free. You know, so we had 376 journalists working on this project. Where I was paying in the end for 20 of them. The rest were being donated basically by all the newsrooms. So that's how you do it. And, and how you do it is you build up you know, everything. The Panama Papers happened because we had done previous investigations like this. We'd actually done a, a number of increasingly larger collaborations. At the time, there were big stories. Um, but, you know, if you, didn't, if you hadn't done the first one, and I think this is a lesson for all young journalists, you know, if you're interested in a topic, it's often a very good idea to write about it because then people who are interested in that, and I say potential sources, basically your audience, everyone who's in the audience is a potential source, they will find you. And so if you can do it once, you will find that if you can get momentum going... Now, the Panama Papers happened simply because it was four years' work to get the, you know, the Germans, the two German reporters who got the material basically had worked on previous ones with us, and it was, a, it was basically that work that led to this indirectly. But so do yeah. they come to you and say, look, this is far too big for us to handle... Um, can we pass the information over to you? I mean, is that how it happened? It was a little bit like that. We had been actually working on Mossack Fonseca before any of this happened uh, with the German journalists because um, the German government basically had taken an interest in Mossack Fonseca as, a, as an entity. In fact, there were raids on German banks in early, I think, 2015. So they were on our radar. The big secret here is that John Doe, the anonymous source of the Panama Papers, had approached other media organizations before Sudocha Saitung, and the journalists had basically not understood the story and didn't realize what they were being offered. But the moment that he contacted Bastian Obermeyer at Sudocha Saitung, Bastian knew this firm. He knew it was great because it had already been known that 
that these were the guys that had set up offshore accounts through Mugabe and, and Gaddafi and other really exciting figures. So basically... I, I don't mean you know, to cut across yeah, you, but sure. I think that was the experience of Chelsea Manning as well. Didn't yeah. Chelsea Manning ring the Absolutely. major news? Yeah, it, we, yeah. we had that happen with um, um, Graham Richardson yeah. and... Um, the people with their Swiss, Rene Rivkin and the Swiss bank accounts, the Israeli journalist rang the Sydney Morning Herald news desk. Somebody late at night said, oh, no, that doesn't sound very interesting. Perhaps you could try the financial review. Oh, no. You think, no, no. <laughs> but going back to how you got the, the gig, I understand from that book that uh, Sebastian said... He was glad you had a soft spot for offshore companies. <laughs> well, that's because we had worked on, you know, when I first went over to the, to the ICIJ, I brought, because I'd worked on a, on a, on a this all goes back to, a, to an Australian fraud, basically, called Firepower. I'd been working on that when I was at the Sydney Morning Herald. I ended up writing a book. Someone then, after I wrote the book, contacted me and said that they had information on um, how Firepower had set up all of their offshore entities. And when I got a hold of that information, it turned out that there were a whole lot of other um, companies around the world in there. Um, when I went to the ICIJ, I brought that material with me, and it became the first of our offshore series in 2013. Bastian, at that stage, was a magazine writer in Germany, not an investigative reporter. He was brought into the project, he and Frederick. And over the next three years, um, through ICIJ, so we then we did offshore leaks, we did China leaks, we did... Uh, you get a theme here. Um, we did LuxLeaks, and then eventually we found um, all the internal records of HSBC Bank in Switzerland a year before the Panama Papers, so that became SwissLeaks. Um, and basically, Bastian and Frederick at that point became renowned investigative reporters. So when they got this material, they had already experienced the ICIJ effect effectively, and um, they immediately contacted me and said, we've got some good material. At that point, he had about a million documents, which I thought wasn't enough really for a project. But then over the course of 2015, he kept getting more and more until eventually we had 11.5 million. So, yeah. What was the trickiest logistical challenge? Well, making the documents searchable and readable and giving access to all of the journalists around the world because every journalist, want, they don't want you to censor the material. They want to have full access. So we had to put everything into a cloud, into the cloud basically, and then... Um, develop a search engine using open source software, which is basically we, we took this software that had been written for librarians and turned it into a tool for the journalists. And so you were able to go from your laptop or your, your computer at work and go straight in and read every single document. That gets the gee whiz factor, but I am really interested to know, I think it was 109 news organisations across 76 countries what about questions of language and differences in journalistic culture and sort of different views of objectivity or, or you know, the kind of the nuts and bolts of the, the kind of reporting or the, the end products that you were going to produce? But fundamentally, as journalists, we all care about the same thing. We all care about a good story. And what we have learned now over the last couple of years is you don't go to editors with these stories. You go to journalists. You go to a Kate McClymont, you know, and you say, have I got a story for you? <laughs> and then you give them the story and then you walk away. They'll do the selling for you. They'll, they'll find the resources in their organization for you. So 
fundamentally, you say, yes, we're working in 25 language groups during this, but we were all basically the same. We're all hungry for a good story. And so once you have that in common, you'd be surprised at how easy it is to work together. Do you agree with that, Lena? <laughs> oh, of course. I, uh, I mean, I'm a journalist at heart before being an editor, and I agree that uh, no one is in a better position to defend, uh, you know, a good story idea than a journalist who has done his background, their background research on it. And, uh, and yeah. So what are the main topics that Maramas... Uh, main investigative stories that Madame has pursues. Most of our investigative work is actually centered on corruption um, and uh, but also we investigate um, issues related to certain political uh, trials but we are very interested in investigation the infrastructure of corruption, how corruption has been practiced over the years in Egypt by certain players uh, because we also found that uh, the, the public, uh, even though has been extremely divided over the past two years uh, on the back of political uh, conflicts in Egypt, there is an alignment over the fact that there is a major uh, waste of resources gone uh, into uh, corruption, lack of accountability, impunity, and so on. And we found that the work done on that level has uh, gained a lot of traction uh, because there's this thirst to know uh, more about how corruption takes place. So I'd say our, there is um, a more and more of a focus from our side on the, the, the question of corruption. Well, the 2014 Constitution actually, uh, I think, introduced the right to free speech in Egypt for the first time. Uh, does that extend to, say, protection for whistleblowers or, is, uh, you know, are there protections for those who reveal corruption? Well, Egypt is not exactly a country that is run by the rule of law nowadays, uh, so uh, a constitutional um, guarantee is, is, is by no means um, a form or a mechanism for protection for, for journalists, let alone uh, whistleblowers, so... Uh, so we don't necessarily have um, any mechanism of support and of protection for whistleblowers. We do, um, however, have an increasing number of um, sources and whistleblowers who would like uh, to cooperate with us, uh, having seen uh, the, you know, the kind of traction that good investigative work does. So it's interesting how, despite the lack of protection, there is still interest in sharing information and in giving out documents to people or information in general to people who can manage them well and who can mediate them and produce them um, um, into compelling narratives to the public. So. Thanks. And Kate, I think it's important to sort of signal what we know to be true at the moment is media industry contraction is just decimating journalism jobs. So, particularly in Australia, particularly at your news organisation. So, I'm just wondering, you know, amongst the clickbait and the native advertising and the algorithm, algorithmically driven Facebook feeds, what signs do you see that there's a kind of potential new funding model uh, emerging for Australian investigative journalism. Oh dear, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, see, this is the the bizarre thing is that, for instance, the Sydney Morning Herald, our website. You know, we've got more readers now. We've got four million readers. Um, you know, individual readers a month on our website, which is enormous. But we just haven't found a way to make it pay, and it's the sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so we just haven't found a way yet 
to make it pay. And of course, as you know, advertising is fractured. Um, it, and it's not just us, it's, it's television, radio, the traditional media is going through the same things. But the public desire for content, and for good content, not just clickbait, um, research has shown that a well-written investigative piece will be really well-read, and there is a desire for it. And also, digital storytelling now, you can actually make it so interesting. If you've got the time, you can have, you can have graphs, you can embed things, you can um, put links to past stories. Like, it can be an incredibly rich way of reading a story. Um, it's just that, yes, we still haven't found a way to make it pay yet. And I'm interested in, in what Lena's doing because here in Australia, it's, I think it's virtually impossible to do investigative journalism unless you work for one of the big companies. Um, for instance... Stephen Main, who founded the website Crikey, he actually lost his house in a defamation suit. He just had a, a, a reference to former immigration minister Nick Balkus doing or saying something, and Nick Balkus sued, and he lost his house. Mm. So I couldn't, Jared couldn't, Lena, you're doing it, but... We couldn't... Um, God, I'd be living in a shanty somewhere if, if I was a freelancer because people do sue you. So, I mean, I'm interested to know um, how you, one, withstand political pressure and what are your defamation laws like over there? I mean, it's... Uh, I we're only managing to, doing, to do it because we're only getting started. And, you know, the conversation we've just had is that I'm... I'm really very skeptical to, you know, for how long can we go on. So I don't want to pre-write uh, a death sentence for my newspaper or anything like this, but there is definitely a lack of sustainability, both on the economic and the political level from the kind of thing that we are doing. But, you know, only because it's new, um, you know, the few first stories have passed. But, you know, it's no wonder that... Uh, our chief investigative reporter is being prosecuted right now. Uh, we don't know if he will end up in prison at the end of the year or not, but it's very possible. So that will also cut uh, a very important source of production for us because uh, he's been doing it so well so far. So, um, so I guess I don't have answers, of course. I, I mean, the, the context in which we're working is... is is very hard uh, politically. The only thing I'd say is that... Um, Maybe what we are trying to do is we are, we are in fact not trying to pre-write the impossibility of doing investigative journalism because of the repressive environment in which we are operating. We are in fact trying and we are fighting self-censorship and paranoia so hard, so fiercely. Mm. We are trying to resist it um, on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, I would question, you know, the worth of doing certain things until, you know, one of my reporters uh, would just remind me that it's fine, we have to do it because otherwise there's no reason for our existence. And we operate in this fashion with the thinking that it's okay if it will be over even if we manage to run for a year or two or three. And in fact, in, in the span of those few years, we would have introduced something new that the people liked and would likely remember somehow. So you're opening up conversations that wouldn't otherwise take place and you're engaging people in debates that wouldn't 
And I think there is also a bit of contagion because also other uh, media organizations are also starting to pick up this this thread of uh, investigative journalism and trying to develop investigative journalism departments. So there is also like um, a virus going around somehow. So, you know, it's just going to get harder and harder to shut down everything in a in a context that is you know, deeply permeated by the internet and, you know, by other investigative journalism practices around the world. Okay. Let's just helicopter out of media land for a moment and remind ourselves that investigative journalism is about exposing systems that are not working properly, whether they're tax systems, political systems, criminal justice systems. Do people really care... Jared. Oh, I think they care deeply. I, I think, you know, if you do a good um, investigative story, you get, you know, you get a much bigger reaction. I mean, let's face it. I mean, let's tell the real truth here. Most journalism is really just reportage. It's not that exciting. I was on a panel last week with Nick Davies from The Guardian. He's the guy who basically, um, you know, exposed the Murdoch empire for... Um, you know, tapping phones and things, and he, and he wrote this book, Flat Earth News, and he was talking about he calls it journalism, basically. You know, where mostly it's rewriting press releases, going to courts, reporting. I think the, I mean, for me, and maybe I'm, I, I am completely biased. I think the re- only true, you know, true journalism is when you expose something that no one wants to to come out, and people deeply care. I mean, the day after the Panama Papers happened. Um, the Icelandic um, um, Parliament House was surrounded by people. It was the biggest public protest in Icelandic history. And they were throwing bananas and yogurt at the building. (laughs) Bananas and yogurt? This is what happens in Iceland. And and the Prime Minister... You know, we've gone... Where's the music? Well, there's your evidence, basically. The Prime Minister, who'd been refusing to resign, you've got to remember, we'd gone to him three weeks earlier. He had three weeks to spin his way out of the story, and he was resisting behind the scenes. And after that, he had to resign. That's why he resigned. So So he resigns, but has there been real change in, you know, the kind of secrecy or the tax evasion in Iceland? Well, I don't even know about Iceland, but... Worldwide, there is a movement for transparency. And even though uh, David Cameron's own father was caught up in the Panama Papers, I mean, he was a a real champion for saying, look, we just can't operate anymore where people are not paying tax in their proper jurisdiction and they're hiding, um, you know, their assets in companies on the other side of the world. So... I think that there, I think there will be um, a major result out of the Panama Papers. It might take time, but I think, I think it, it yeah. will. These things do take time, but I mean, people hate the idea that others are getting away with something or that they're that playing by different tax. rules. Exactly, yes. yeah. And so when you can expose that, then you've got to get a very strong reaction. This is what I think it's, we are slowly changing public perception, making this an issue, forcing it to be an issue. But it takes, you know, it takes us, you know, this is where I think journalists are important because you can't just do a one-off story. I mean, Malcolm Turnbull gets named and then there's no follow-up and there's not another document that you can bring out. I mean, to really get change, you've got to be really persistent. You've got to do it again and again and again. And basically, not repeat the same story, but find new ways of telling the story and bringing people's focus back to the, to the issue at hand, basically. Do you then run the risk, though, of 
by taking a position and wanting to keep things alive? Do you run the risk of being seen as advocates rather than reporters? Well, for me, no. I mean, I don't know how it's it's not, It's not advocates. Sometimes you can be accused of being the persecutor rather than the advocate. Um, and I can remember um, Judy Obeid, wife of Eddie, once said to reporters gathered outside their house, what have we ever done to that woman? Meaning you. me. <laughs> and you sort of think, that's not it. It's not... I don't really care about the Obeds personally, but I care about what they have done, you know, who they have ripped off. And it's so easy for people to often, you know, blame the reporter. Um, you know, the amount of abuse you get from people that you write about. You know, I had far too many Eddies in my life. And um, uh, former brothel owner Eddie Hasten rang me up the other day and, you know, called me an effing old mole. And I thought, <laughs> Really? Is that M-O-L-E or M-O-L-L-E, I thought to myself. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, and, they, and he said to me, you know, the only criminal in this story is you. And I said, me? And he said, yes, you know, you're getting people's private information. And I said, what, so you can do crooked things and it's only bad because I'm revealing it. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so if we play out what might come as, you know, the consequence or the, or the achievement of the Panama Papers, what, what would you realistically hope to be the change that would significantly alter the current situation? Well, I think, I think you know, I mean, when you're basically taking away the currency of this secrecy, then I think you're really, that's, that's all they have to sell in the offshore world. It's the one product they have. When you take that away, I think the biggest fear here is that you know, Mossack Fonseca is one of 800 firms around the world that do this. Mm -hmm. So they don't know what the next one's going, what the next leak is going to be or what the fear is. And, you know, tax offices around the world have informed us that, that they have basically collected hundreds of millions of dollars based on people now voluntarily come forward. And uh, so I think there's, you know, that's a real change by itself. It's that perception that they don't know what's next. Mm. You know? Just to yeah. give an example, uh, one very uh, humble exercise we tried to do at Nadamasa after the Panama Papers is that we, we set up an appointment with, uh, with the legal firms uh, that facilitates um, registration of companies in tax havens uh, to just and pretended that we were interested to, you know, uh, basically set up a company uh, Abroad, and we were very interested to see how the conditions and the regulations became much hardened because of what happened with the Panama Papers, and that's that made me think about you know what's what's the promise of journalism and this question of change. Sometimes it's assumed that you know an, a direct change of the like 180 degrees type is what's expected, but I feel this sheer unsettlement of the you know traditional arrangements. Is a, very, is a major and important and urgent interruption. Otherwise, you know, we could have imagined those arrangements to continue eternally and to, you know, aggravate and to include more and more players in there without this kind of interruption. The disruption, I think, is huge, and that's a major impact uh, that should be, you know, thought about as change in and of itself. Do you want to add something there, Kat? No, I was just thinking as you were talking about that, about how we also... Um, as journalists, we might start something off, but often it's up to law enforcement and to um, 
our legal institutions to follow those things up. And I was just thinking about the um, Foreign Corruption and Bribery Act. Here in Australia, we don't actually take um, Australian business paying bribes overseas all that seriously. Um, whereas if you do that in America and you get caught, you can actually go to jail. Or China. And, yes. So, well, yes, exactly. So it will be interesting to see, you know, some of the things that um, The Age has been reporting about Una Oil and um, uh, security, some of those issues. It'll be interesting to see whether any prosecutions eventually result out of that. And that really does focus people's minds very seriously. It's, it's one thing to be exposed, it's another thing to go to jail over yeah. But do you think the authorities see investigative journalists as allies, as sort of helping them to get to, you know, yes. the reforms I, that yeah, they need I, no, to? Because they there, there is also this sense that if there's any kind of follow-up, often it's the journalists and the whistleblowers who are chased rather than the, the crooks. Look, sometimes, but I do think that um, uh, law enforcement and journalism can work really well together. I mean, often people will tell a journalist something that you can report and they'd rather tell you than go to the police. Having said that, there are cases where you are at complete loggerheads where your purpose is to reveal something, theirs is to prosecute. It's what Jared was saying before. He doesn't see why he should hand over you know, papers to authorities, and that's not our job. Um, but, you know, if you can help, you know, you do, really. If you're not compromising a source or anything like that, um, it's, you know, I think to society's advantage if you can be of assistance, if you can. Do you want to elaborate well, on Well, I just think if you can, you know, if you can get public anger or public reaction then it forces authorities to take these things seriously. It's how politicians react. It's how, you know, tax authorities or, or police authorities react. It's, it's basically, if you know, it's public opinion. I mean, what we try and, and do is basically expose something that's of public interest. And if you have genuine public interest, then that is pressure to fix the wrong that you're exposing. So I think, you know, we, you know at its best, journalism is great, I think. Well, I mean, you only have to look at the... Recent Four Corners, this is our flagship um, current affairs program here, had a story about um, abuses at a, a youth detention facility in Darwin. And that material had come out in drips and drabs and there'd been investigations, but once you get a national program running the footage... and it, With again, the images. It's, it's images. Mm. The reaction was swift and fast mm. and universal. And you feel a bit sorry for... Um, like the local newspaper um, in the Northern Territory. You would also... never feel sorry no, for no, the Northern no. Territory <laughs> Times. No, OK, it wasn't a crocodile. It wasn't a crocodile involved, I give you that. But no, having said that, um, it is sometimes um, a, a major paper or you know, a national broadcaster that can have a lot more effect. And it's the same with the Panama Papers. That global effect of having... Um, a universal tidal wave of reports, even though they were local, it's that mass activity which really has an effect, I think. And Lena, if you're working alongside a very authoritarian government and a very repressive sort of uh, security apparatus, how, how does 
how do you see the, the kind of relationship with journalism in that instance? I mean, I think in our context, it's much harder to expect this kind of dynamic where uh, journalists and law enforcers can work hand-in-hand hand together. In a case like the Panama Papers, it's almost impossible uh, in a context where business and politics are tightly married. Uh, and, you know, we're, our only job is to, you know, try to report the story and, uh, and you know, the most the authorities would do, which was the case with the, with the son of Mubarak, uh, who was... Uh, exposed in the Panama Papers is, is basically that law enforcement deafened them, the, the, the ears to the story. They, they, weren't, they took no interest in basically following up on, uh, on the story. So for us, uh, it is so hard to imagine journalism as something else than an act of dissidence, uh, yes. really. Yes. Uh, and that's why we always get questioned, you know, what is the difference between what you're doing and activism? And we don't feel like uh, we have to be apologetic about it or anything like that in a context where, in an authoritarian context where the free flow of information is um, consistently being fought by the authorities, uh, being a journalist becomes a de facto uh, form of activism, you know. Mm. So I'm interested to hear how you cope with pressure, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the demands of the job. Uh, perhaps, Jared. I mean, you've been in, under the most enormous pressure in the last few months, so how do you cope with it? Well, I'm sure Lena and Kate will tell you the same thing. You do not enjoy doing these things at the time. You only enjoy it well after it's all over because, you know, you worry constantly. I mean, even the day after publication, even two days, three days, you're literally, you're, even if you're doing media interviews, you're trying to keep your cool because if the phone starts ringing, all you think is who's, who's ringing to complain, where's the legal letter that's coming in. So it's, um, I don't know how you cope, I just think you just constantly worry, you know, and, and then six months later maybe you look back and you say, oh, okay, nothing went wrong, or, or you recalibrate and ask, well, what could you have done better? I don't know how you cope, really. I just think that you're driven by the story, and to do this kind of work, you really need to think, you know, almost like when you're playing a chess game, you've got to think four, five, six steps ahead at all times so you never get a chance to relax. I don't know how you cope. I'm, I'm interested to find out from Lena, you guys. your turn. You know? <laughs> I mean, I try to mute so much, uh, the, you know, what could be the possible uh, dreadful scenarios of yeah. uh, running uh, a problematic story. Uh, I try to just mute that voice in my head as much as possible until the story is out so that, you know, it doesn't circumvent the, the process of producing the story. And, you know, I just try as much as possible to direct the energy towards how can this story be read the most possible way? You know, how can we edit it best? How can we add information? So the focus is really on the quality of the and story. And the readers. And rather. the readers and the audience around the story. So, Kate? Look, I think you spend most of your time feeling seriously ill. And, and, yeah, you know, okay. like, and the night before you yeah. publish a story, you feel no sense of joy or achievement. You just feel complete dread and you, you're sleepless and you, you just worry. You spend so much time worrying about, you know, did I check that? Did I do this? Did I, did I do that? And um, I can remember doing a story on Michael Williamson and Craig Thompson, the two health services union people, and it was about the fact that they'd been given an American Express card by somebody who'd been paying the union I didn't have a single document. All I had was a fantastic source at American Express who had seen the documents. 
And my editor, the lawyers were saying, I just don't know how you can do this. Are you sure? And my source, who I'd had for years, was absolutely positive. But I can remember getting to five o'clock the next day and running to lawyers and saying, no legal lawyer, no legal letter has arrived. And you think if you can get to the first day without a legal threat, you sort of think you're on the, the home path. Mm. So, but you do. And, and this is the thing that really destroys you is the, the litigation. Because mm -hmm. when you are sued... Um, it just ties you up for months. Every call you made, they subpoena every email. And there was a case that Linton Besser and I were in recently and they subpoenaed all our emails. And there was one email in there that was talking about one of the sources that said, um, I think Linton said, said, oh, you know, the man mountain, you know, the man that looks like he's eaten up the whole chop. And I, said, oh, and I write back saying a whole chop, he's consumed a whole beast. I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's going to come out in court that we've made jokes. Because the thing is, you are, you know, you're human. human. So it's those kind of things that, that, you, that you worry about. Thank you. Yeah, On that question? note, yeah. we'll draw this uh, discussion to a conclusion. Uh, we've run out of time and I would really like you to join with me to thank Jared and Lena and Kate for being with us tonight. Thank you very much.